Thanks, band. That was fun, huh? We, we, we like doing that. <laughs> All right, welcome again to uh, Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad that you joined us this uh, beautiful spring morning. I said spring first service, and people got mad at me, but it really does feel like spring. It's going to be almost 60 today, so enjoy it, but we're glad that you uh, did choose to join us this morning. We are actually uh, in between series right now, and so we just finished uh, a short series in the book of Jude, which was uh, one chapter long, so we did that in three weeks. We're going to do a short kind of mini-series of uh, four different open mic sermons, and then uh, start a new book of the Bible in four weeks. So this week, uh, I got to choose what, what passage that uh, God was kind of laying on my heart, and like uh, Peter said before, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the prodigal son, or it's the what I'm going to be entitling, the parable of two sons. So Jesus uh, taught often in parables. He definitely did things like the Sermon on the Mount where he uh, just said, blessed are the, and then he explained it or, or, or said what we should or shouldn't do. Yet he also taught a lot in parables. And parables are, are stories that are trying to communicate a truth or a message about salvation or, or Jesus's kingdom. And so we're going to look at the parable of the two sons, which is uh, commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son today. It's a very, very common uh, parable. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't know the Bible, you probably have heard this reference. It's a very, it's a very popular in culture, as well as it's a very powerful parable. So lots of Christians who, who know this story really, really love it because it, it speaks to us. It speaks to our condition. Often in the Bible, we read it, and we're not the main characters, or we're not even a character in this story. But this, uh, in this parable, we're actually can uh, very readily see ourselves in uh, both of these sons, and we'll be talking about, about that in, in just a second. But even though this is such a powerful and common parable, it, it's often only partially understood. Even with the name, the prodigal son is, is speaking to one of the sons, but in the parable, we're going to see there's actually two sons. And so we're going to unpack that this morning. Uh, a very influential book that helped me with this is, is called The Prodigal God by uh, Tim Keller. He's the author and pastor in New York City. If, if you really like this parable or you want to expand on uh, this sermon this morning, check this book out. It, it, it's super great. It's uh, really short as well. This author has written like 30 plus books, and he said that this is probably the most important one that he's ever written because it, it speaks to the heart of Christianity, what, what the gospel really is uh, through this parable. He, uh, the subtitle of this book is Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. So check that out. I'll be quoting him a few times uh, this morning. What we need to know before we hop in, even though we're entitling this sermon the parable of two sons, uh, this word prodigal uh, is often in the title, and Keller actually calls his book the prodigal God. But this word prodigal, uh, despite what many people think it means, it does not mean wayward, or it does not mean rebellious. But prodigal actually means uh, a reckless spender, or someone who wastefully spends until you have nothing left. So we're going to see one character in the story is a prodigal son, but we're also like Keller's getting at here in his book, God actually is a prodigal God in the story as well. He, he spends until he has nothing uh, left in a good way, in, in a way that's good news to us. So if you want to follow along, uh, all the words will be on the screen. Uh, the passage is too long, so it's not in your actual handout today, but you can find it uh, in a pew Bible in front of you, or again, just follow on the screen. We're going to be looking at Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, if you want to find that. We're going to start in uh, verse 11 here. And he, so Jesus, and Jesus said, and then he starts his parable here, there was a man who had two sons, 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. So in ancient cultures, you know, this happened like 2,000 years ago. In ancient cultures, the, the elder son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. So there's two sons. The, the older son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son one-third. And so what the younger brother is asking for is he's saying, Father, you owe me or my inheritance when you die is going to be uh, one-third of your wealth, and I want that now. Give it to me. But as with inheritance, something has to happen, right, before it can pass hands, right? The, the person who has the wealth or the property or whatever has to die in order for the, the receiver to inherit it. So essentially what, what the younger son is saying is he, he's looking his father in the face and he's saying, I want you dead. I, I, I want your gifts rather than you. I'd rather have you be gone and out of my life and, and you dead and me to receive your wealth. So to Jesus' audience, I mean, that's, that's already kind of shocking to us as well, but to Jesus' audience, a very patriarchal society, this type of man would bring a type of dishonor uh, that would be enormous, and, and it would probably be unheard of to hear of a son speak to and treat his father in this manner. Even in the Jewish law, there was a, a, if, if, if a son disrespected their parents like this, they could even be stoned. And so, not, not the... Bob Marley kind of stone, but like the capital punishment where they were hit with, with rocks and stones until they died. So it's a big deal, right? And so what, what the son is doing to the father, really big deal, and we're going to look at how the, the father responds. And so just to kind of get a good feeling for this, m- many of you here today are parents. Think about if your grown son actually said that to you, looked you in the eyes as, as, a, you know, as a late teenager or early adult and, and said, Dad, I hate you. I want you dead, and I want what's mine. Give me your inheritance. Just think of the betrayal and the heartache that you would feel if your grown child demanded that of you. And we see how the father responds. He doesn't, you know, call his son out and say, capital punishment, you're going to get stoned for your disrespect. But rather, it says that the father divided his property. He he, uh, gave in to his son's request. And so the, the father's property and wealth is almost for sure in land and in buildings and homes and, and uh, things like that. And so what the father is going to have to do is, is liquidate all of his assets. He has, he's going to have to change his life. He's going to have to sell his land and his property and his home to uh, liquidize his wealth in order to be able to give his son uh, his inheritance. So instead of disowning his son publicly, instead of uh, coming down hard on him or, or or calling him out for the great disgrace and dishonor that the son brought on the father. The father willingly split up his entire life, his estate, his home, in order to give his son his inheritance. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far-off country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the younger, the younger brother takes all this wealth that he just received and he heads to Vegas. He blows it all on uh, whatever he wants. There's no desire or pleasure that he denies himself. Later on in the story, we're going to see the, the older brother speak of what the younger brother's doing here and says, wasted all of his money on, on prostitutes. And so we see he blows all of his money. 
in this far-off country. And when his money's gone, so are his friends. So is the wealth. And he has nothing to show for it except for broken relationships back home and being empty-handed. He has regret. And he actually here is where, where the name prodigal comes up. He is the prodigal son here. He has wastefully spent everything and has nothing left to show for it. But his situation gets even worse. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the son's money is gone. All that wealth that he had, he spent it, and it's gone. There's no insurance, no rainy day fund. There's no homeless shelter or government safety net, maybe something that we have now. And he's far off from his family, right? The, the only people that would be that safety net for, for people at this time, uh, he's far, far from them. And so he has literally no hope. And so what he does is he hires himself out. He becomes a servant to someone else, and he goes into the fields, and he feeds pigs. So even for most of us, that sounds like a really horrible job, right? Pigs are stinky and, and dirty, and feeding them would just seem like a horrible job or to seem beneath us. But even more so in a culture that, uh, that pigs were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, him working with pigs would make himself ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And also he's hiring himself out to a Gentile. So as a Jewish person, this would add even more humiliation and just show how incredibly desperate he was. And the story continues, it says that he's so desperate, he's so poor, that he even longs to eat the pig slop that he's feeding the pigs. And he can't even get that. So he wants to eat the grossest of grossest foods, and he can't even have that. So he has literally hit his, his very rock bottom. So if it's not clear yet, and, and hopefully it is, but if it's not clear yet, when Jesus is, is telling this parable, the father in the story is... is representative of, of God the Father. God calls himself Father throughout the Bible, and so as we're seeing the Father interact with people today, see that as, as God the Father. And then uh, the Son, the younger Son, represents humanity, represents us and our rebellion against God. So let's look at Romans 1, a different part of the Bible. So this is actually after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And look how, how it describes God the Father and his relationship with humanity and how humanity responds to God. It's going to look very similar to the part of the parable that Jesus just said. So when we see the word they, think about us, humanity, or think about the younger brother, and then God representing the Father in the uh, parable here. Romans 1, 21 through 25 says, for, all they, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So a few verses right before this, the very beginning of Romans 1, it says... God's wrath is coming against unrighteousness, is coming against ungodliness. So God's wrath is, is punishing sin. And often when we think 
of, of God's wrath, we maybe think of like fire coming down from heaven and consuming people or, or maybe like the earth opening up and swallowing people. But notice what it says here. What, what's God's wrath coming against sin, coming against ungodly people and unrighteous people? It says they or, or we, we wanted God's gifts rather than God himself. We, want, we worshiped creation rather than creator God. It reminds us of our parable we just saw. And notice how God the Father responds. Notice what his wrath is. He says, okay, you want that? You want my gifts instead of me? You want my inheritance instead of relationship with me? Okay, I'll give it to you. I know it won't satisfy you. I know it will bring you much pain and heartache. I know that you will only be truly happy or fulfilled or satisfied when you're with me. But if that's what you want, if it's really what you want, here, you can have my gifts. So the prodigal son is a story about humanity, and it's a story about us. Verse 17, but when he, the younger son, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So at the son's lowest point, he realizes that even the servants, even the employees of his father have it better off than he has it now. So he, he begins to devise this plan of return, of repentance and coming to his father and saying, hey, I know I dishonored you publicly. I know that I said I want you dead and I want out of your family and I just want your money. So I'm not asking to be returned into the family or be reinstated as a son. Just, just hire me as one of your lowly servants because I'm dying. I'm dying here. And maybe this is you. Maybe as we're beginning this parable of the prodigal son, maybe you really see yourself in them, this person, this, this younger son. Maybe your past has been one of, of lots of rebellion, lots of sin. Maybe you've actually gone and, and been with prostitutes or gone to a place and like the slogan of Vegas says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But whatever that is for you, you just can't forgive yourself. Maybe you've squandered money. Maybe you burned bridges, hurt people really bad. And this just really seems like your story. You feel very far off and distant from God and at your rock bottom here this morning. Maybe you hate yourself and are like this son here. You're thinking, God can't really love me. I've already, you know, I, I know I was his son or his daughter at one time, but I've sinned so much, I hate myself so much, there's no way God can love me. But maybe I can just kind of approach him as a servant. So I'm not really an adopted, cherished, loved uh, daughter or son of God, but maybe can, I can just have a, uh, an employee-servant relationship with him. So maybe you're like that. Maybe today you really resonate with the younger son. And if that's true, listen to how God the Father responds to you. Verse 20. And he arose, the younger son, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So some of you maybe have met my father. He's the guy on the far left there in, in the white. His name's Tim. Uh, even though my father in high school was a track star, really fast, uh, growing up, I actually can hardly ever remember seeing him run, even though in his Earlier days, he was a big-time runner. And then now, as, as I'm an adult, I, I can't even ever think of a time 
as an adult I've ever seen my father run. So even in our culture, right, an old man in his 50s, 60s, 70s running, sprinting a long distance, right, that seems pretty strange to us. It, It would show us, or it surprises us, right? It would show us that something pretty incredible is happening. But even more so, in an ancient culture where, where older men definitely did not run, this would be quite incredible. A man running would, would often bring embarrassment or disgrace. A man pulling up his robe to show off his legs in order to run or running this great distance would have just been very embarrassing. But the father doesn't care. He doesn't care who sees He doesn't care what shame is brought upon him. He doesn't care how he gets embarrassed or what people will say or how others will talk about him. He sees his son, the son that he thought was dead, the son that was lost, and he's now come home. He's alive, and his father is filled with great compassion and love, and that compels him to sprint a great distance, to look like a fool, to embrace his son and hug and kiss him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So the son apologizes. He acknowledges his sin against his father and that his sin is also against God. He begins to share this rehearsed apology he probably said over and over again to himself throughout his his long trip back home that he knows he was wrong and that he, he knows his father could never accept him as a son and welcome him back in to the family, but all he wants is just to be a lowly hired servant so that he doesn't starve to death. But before he can get out this rehearsed apology, the father cuts him off. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So even before the son can get out his full apology and, and, and tell his father this, this plan that he has of not being a son anymore but just being a hired servant, the father interrupts him with this great lavish and liberal forgiveness and generosity. He gives his son the best robe in the house, clothing him, which is probably his father's robe, which would have been the, the best and more expensive one. He gives him a ring and shoes, which essentially is restoring him not just as a hired servant, but restoring him into the family. He's wearing the family's robe, the family's signet ring, the family's shoes. So the father is saying, no, of course not. You're not going to be just, just a servant again. You're back in my family. You're back in my home. I'm restoring you as a son. And then the father throws a huge party. He can't help it, right? He, he, he spends lots of money killing the fattened calf. That'd be very costly as well as a great, great honor. And he invites the whole village to have this great festival. And everybody is celebrating. Everyone must celebrate. He was lost, he was dead, and now he is found and he is alive. It's like Tim Keller describes this passage, this parable, he calls it the prodigal God. Because here we see God's prodigal love for sinners. And this passage is so powerful because it shows God's relentless love for us and his forgiveness for rebellious sinners just like us, right? So in this story, if God the Father, or if God is the Father, and we are the younger son, or if humanity is the younger son, we see just God's great love for us. We see the gospel played out in a story. 
So after wanting his gifts rather than him, remember Romans 1 language, after dishonoring him, after rebelling against him, and running away far from him, God still desires us back. And he runs towards us rather than making us come all the way to him. He has compassion towards us rather than making us clean up and make retribution first. He covers our sin rather than making us clean up first. He doesn't say, man, son, you're disgusting and filthy and smelly. Clean up first before you can enter my presence, enter into, enter into my home. Brother, clothes him in the robe. He lavishly and generously pours out his love and his good gifts over us rather than withholding it. He rejoices in our return rather than taking us back purely out of guilt or out of duty. And he forgives us, welcoming us back into full standing into his family. Not as servants, not as slaves, not as employees, but restores us as children. A little bit later on in the Bible, after Jesus' death and resurrection, in the book of Ephesians looks at the Christian's life and at Christian salvation that comes through Jesus. And, and, and listen to how it describes it. Very, very similar to what we just read in the parable about God's great love towards the prodigal son. Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So in our rebellion, we ran away from God. We indulged in our own sinful desires. We dishonored God by wanting his gifts rather than him. But God loved us deeply and showed us his, his great generous mercy. We were spiritually dead but he welcomed us back into his family. He forgave us, and he made us alive in Christ. He brought us back into his family. He made us adopted sons and daughters. And not just that, but he seats us next to our perfect older brother and makes us even heirs with Jesus Christ himself. Yet notice that, that the Father's forgiveness is costly. Often people can read this parable and stop right here and think that forgiveness is not really costly. Or just wonder in general, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive? Why did someone have to pay a price? But notice, we see it here in the story, and we'll see it more as we finish the parable. Forgiveness always costs someone something. Forgiveness is always costly. We borrowed our car to, to a friend in our community group who needed it this week. And this didn't happen, just to be clear. But uh, let's just say, if he took my car when he was borrowing it and he crashed it into a light pole, Right, some of you are thinking, wow, Spencer drives a Ferrari? I, I didn't know that. But if he drove the car and crashed it into a light, pole, a light pole, for me to forgive him, right, it, it cost me something. Either I have to pay to, to fix my car, 
Either my insurance company has to pay to fix the car or the person who is driving the car has to fix it, right? Someone has to pay. And even if no one does pay and we leave the car like this, it costs me something because I go from having a car to not having a car. So forgiveness always costs someone something, whether it's the, the person that's been sinned against or whether it's the person offering forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. At the beginning of the story, the father lost his fortune, lost his, his life, his livelihood, as well as he bore the shame. So the sin against the father cost him a lot. And so for the father to forgive his son, he must either absorb the cost of, of giving away all the inheritance, or the son must repay him. And obviously the son's not repaying him. So forgiveness costs the father a lot. As well as at the end of the parable, we're going to see that the father speaks to the other brother, the older brother, and tells him, everything I have now is yours, son. I gave my a third of my inheritance to my younger son, and you as the older son get a double portion. Everything I have is yours. So forgiveness to come to the younger son, the rebellious younger brother, it's going to cost the older brother, right? That, that, that robe, that ring, those shoes, the money for this party, the fattened calf, essentially is the older brother's. So even forgiveness must cost something, whether from the father or from the older brother. But that's not the end of the story. Most of us know the beginning part of the prodigal son, but there actually is more to the parable. There's actually a second son, an elder son, an older son, who in contrast to the younger, rebellious, immoral son is very immoral, follows the rules very well, and is an older son. Let's continue with Jesus' parable. Verse 25 now, his older son was in the field. So when the younger son returns, the older son is out in the field. And as the older son came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Okay, so the older brother is out in the field, doesn't see this interaction between the younger brother and the father, and he hears, your brother, your brother that's, that's been lost to us, he's actually been found. Your brother that you thought probably was dead is actually alive. And no, he's not just coming back and now being thrown in prison or be, becoming a beggar or disgraced or, or is now a servant of your father, but your father's forgiven him. Your father has brought restoration and, and welcomed him back into the family. And so we can just wonder and guess how the elder brother should respond, right? He should be thankful. He should be grateful. He should be happy that his younger brother repented and that his father forgave and restored him. But that's not what happens. Verse 28. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So think about how embarrassing that that would be. The older brother, now mimicking the younger brother, he embarrasses his father. The father is throwing this great party, inviting the whole village, come in, my son who I thought is dead, he's not dead, he's back. He's restored to our family. And then the servant comes up and says, hey, your older son, he won't even come in this party. Think about how embarrassing and disgraceful that would be to, the, to him. But the father, again, look at his great love for his sons. He leaves the party and goes out and entreats them. He says, come back in. 
I want you in here. Let me explain what has happened. Verse 29. But the older son answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? But the older brother's response is the opposite of the father's. Rather than compassion and forgiveness and love, he answers with self-righteousness, with anger, with contempt. He's big on justice, right? He's saying, seriously, father, this is not just. This is not fair. This is not right. I have lived a perfect life. I have never sinned against you. I have always worked for you. Yet instead, you forgive and welcome back this son of yours. Notice he doesn't call him my brother. He hasn't restored him into relationship with himself, but he says, your son rather than my brother. The elder son is doing the same thing he hated in the younger son by humiliating his father publicly and by disgracing him and arguing against his father's actions. And again, look how the father responds. And the father said to the elder son, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. So how does the father respond to the the self-righteous and the arrogant son? He patiently reaffirms his love towards him. He reminds him of his identity. He says, son, you're my son. I love you. Everything everything that's mine is yours. But we have to celebrate. How can we not? Your brother who is dead is now alive. Your brother who is lost is now found. And the father implores his son to get over himself so that he can be with the father and enter the feast. Notice what Jesus is doing here. With the older brother, it's not his sin that is keeping him out of the feast. It's not his rebellion that's keeping him away from the father. It's his good deeds. It's his morality. It's his self-righteousness and his arrogance that's keeping him from the father. Now, I intentionally skipped the very first few verses of this passage. So at the beginning of Luke 15, uh, Jesus is interacting with some religious rulers. And in response to that, he tells this parable and a couple other similar, similar parables with it. So let's look at that. So this is what leads Jesus to tell this parable. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. Okay, so culturally what's going on, tax collectors are just really hated people, right? They're probably Jewish people that now are working for the Roman government, the oppressive Roman government that's, that's ruling over Jewish people. And so they, they kind of uh, betray their own people. They work for the oppressive government, and they take taxes from their own people to, to pay the oppressive governments for uh, continuing to keep them oppressed. And so tax collectors really hated, as well as sinners are also drawing near to Jesus. So just a big general category for all different kinds of people who are breaking God's laws and who are sinners. So these type of people are drawing near to Jesus. And now look at how the religious rulers respond. Look at how the elder brother types respond. And the Pharisees and the scribes, so religious rulers that on the outside look very righteous, 
on the outside look very perfect and moral. These religious rulers, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so this is the setting. And in response to this, Jesus teaches the parable of the two sons. Jesus teaches this parable and and a couple others, like I said, that are similar to it in response to the powerful, self-righteous, arrogant religious rulers. He teaches them that this parable to these religious rulers who are just like older brothers who are grumbling that Jesus is drawing near younger brother type. That he's eating with and befriending and accepting people who are rebellious against God. So yes, this parable is definitely about God's extravagant love, his great forgiveness to sinful, rebellious, younger sons of whom we are, we are all a part, right? But it is also equally about the contempt and disdain the older brothers have towards God and his lavish forgiveness and mercy. Notice again, who's attracted to Jesus? Is it the people that follow the rules? Is it the moral people? Is it the people who are doing everything correctly and on the outside look really good? No, those are the people that are grumbling. It's the people that are like the younger brother that are drawn towards Jesus. It's the people who are in trouble, the people who are ostracized, the people who are at their very rock bottom. It's the spiritually outcast. It's the broken. It's the hurting. It's the lonely. It's the people that are so desperate they're willing to eat pig slop. Those are the people that are surrounding Jesus, and it's driving the the moral, righteous-looking people nuts. And how did Jesus' parable end? Remember, he preaches this parable in response to what's going on here. How does this parable end? It ends with with the self-righteous, arrogant, moral, rule-following, older brother, apart from the Father, outside of the feast. So even in this parable, Jesus is pleading with these religious rulers, pleading with the, the Pharisees and the scribes, saying, this is you. You hate that I'm forgiving sinners, and at the same time, you are actually far from me. You are actually on the outside of the feast. Come in. I still love you. I'm still calling you son. I still, I'm still entreating you. I want you to be part of this party. I want you to be in relationship with me. And that's how this parable ends. The older brother's outside. He's not with the father. He's choosing to be at odds with his father because he thinks God's grace and mercy is unjust and not fair. And it ends with the younger brother being restored into the family, reconciled with the father, and feasting. Tim Keller in his book, and I I believe this is quite quite accurate in general, that there's two different ways that, that we try to find happiness or fulfillment or meaning in our lives. And both of these different uh, worldviews or frames of mind or whatever feel superior to the people on the other side, right? And I could probably raise my hand for, for both of these different uh, ways of thinking throughout my life as well. One way is, the, is irreligion, is, is not religion. Maybe, maybe described as self-discovery or self-actualization, the, the way of the younger brother, right? I don't need rules. I don't need the father. I don't need cultural norms. Just give me the money and let me go discover myself. Let me have the most fun and pleasure possible. The other way is religion, 
or rather rules or morals, stuff that we must follow, and that's the older brother, right? But there's a third way. Well, let's look at how these two ways interact with each other and respond to each other. Tim Keller comments on this. He calls the, the irreligion group or the younger brother group, he calls them moral conformists. So the moral conformists, or sorry, the older brothers, say the immoral people, those who do their own thing, the younger brothers, they're the problem with the world. And moral people, good people, are the solution. The younger brothers, the advocates of self-discovery, say the bigoted people, the people who say we have the truth, they are the, peop- they are the problem with the world. And progressive people are the solution. Each side says one way is the way that the world will be put to right, and if you're not with us, you are against us. Both of us could probably raise our hands to at least one of those, if not even both of those, throughout our life, right? But Jesus offers a third way, a way different than religion and a different way than irreligion. He offers us a third way to happiness, fulfillment, and meaning in our lives. So if we are the younger brother in the story, what do we long for when we read the parable of the prodigal son? We long for a better older brother, right? We need a better older brother. If we are in a far-off country, destitute with no hope, rock bottom, we long for a better older brother who will rescue us. There's this true story told by Edmund Clowney about an American soldier in the Vietnam War who was missing in action. And back home, his, his family couldn't find anything about him through all the official channels. And so the soldier's older brother quits his job, liquidates his, 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 his savings to get money to buy a plane ticket and to go search for and rescue his brother. So he buys a plane ticket, flies to, to Vietnam, risks his life, and goes through the war zones and the hospitals and jungles looking for his younger brother. That's the type of brother we need. If we are the younger brother, we need a type of brother like this one just described. We need a true and better older brother, one who will give up his comfort and wealth to come find us, rescue us, pay our debt, and bring us home, bring us back to the Father. Sounds a lot like someone we know, right? When we see an imperfect older brother in this parable, it should make us long for a perfect, a better, a true elder brother. Tim Keller writes on this. He says, We need one who does not just go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but at the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family. For our debt is much greater. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. There Jesus was stripped naked of his robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with the dignity and standing we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we might be brought near into God's family freely by grace. There is no other way for the Heavenly Father to bring us in except at the expense of our true elder brother. That's the good news today. We are the younger brother and we have a true and better and greater older brother who did this, who went through this to bring us back home, to pay our debt, to restore us to the Father. And because of this good news, because of the gospel, because we have a true older brother, 
there is a level playing field. It's the only place that allows healing for the younger brother and forgiveness for the older brother. Before the cross of Jesus, all are equal. We're all sinful. We're all in need of a Savior. And so we should see ourselves both in the younger brother and in the older brother. Definitely, we'll probably fall more into one or the other, but when we see this story, we should realize we're both incredibly self-righteous and look down on people who are worse than us. And at the same time, we also know our hearts and our pasts and realize we are desperately far from God in need of forgiveness and restoration and healing. So a few things today as we close. First one is an obvious one, but something we still need to do. Don't just read over this one because you've heard it a million times. But our call today is to repent from our immorality. Repent from our sin and our rebellion against God. So repent means to turn 180 degrees. To confess our sin to God, just like, just like the younger son did. He said, God, or he said, Father, I have sinned against you and against God. And I'm sorry, forgive me. So let us do that today. Let us repent from our immorality, our sin, our rebellion against God, as we are all younger brothers. Jen Wilkin writes, you will never turn from a sin that you don't hate. So today, look at your life. Just like the, the younger brother in his story, all these things that he thought were gifts, the way that he was running, running away from God, look very carefully, either in the younger brother's story or your own story, and see how all those things brought about great, great pain. Pain to himself, pain to loved ones, pain to the people he was living around. And so to see our sin as, as, as not just something that God says don't do, but is really fun, but see the, the devastating consequences of our sin, of living apart from him. And see how the gift is not nearly as great as the gift giver. So hate our sin and the consequences of it, and that will help us actually truly want to repent and turn from our sin back to God. But secondly, which is maybe less common to hear, we forget about it more, don't just repent from your sins, but also repent from your morality. Your good deeds done apart from God. Your good works done from, from selfish motivation or prideful motivation or impure motivation. Anyone ever done anything good just so people would look positively at them? Or anyone loved someone because you knew you'd get something really good in return? Or that the consequences were just worse and so you didn't want to go through that, so you, so you did something good? Rarely do we, do we hear this, right, that, that our morality, our good deeds keep us from God. But we see that today in the parable, and we see how they can just eat away at our hearts and make us become very arrogant, self-righteous, have contempt and hatred towards the sinners who are rebellious from God and not even like when they come back to him. Realize that even our good deeds done apart from God, apart from faith, can keep you from God. That's Jesus' big message to these religious people that think they're so good because they've followed every single law, every single rule, and he tells them, because of your self-righteousness, these, these good deeds that you're actually doing are keeping you out of the kingdom, are keeping you away from me, are keeping you out of the feast. So repent from your morality, your good deeds that are done apart from God. Whether it's to make yourself look better, whether it's out of selfish ambition, or impure motives.
And then finally, out of both of these things, out of the gospel, allow this good news, the truth about our true elder brother, Jesus' death and resurrection, his death on the cross in our place, him, him buying us back, him paying our debt, him restoring us to the Father. Let that good news give you both love and compassion for both younger and older brothers in your life. Allow the gospel to give you love and compassion for both older brothers and younger brothers in your life. So let's start with an older brother. Sorry, a younger brother. If you see someone deep in sin, let's get real practical in here. If you, get, if you see someone deep in sin, running from God, you know, hurting people, hurting themselves, how would the older brother see that? He would see that with disgust, disdain, arrogance that he wasn't like that. But a gospel thought actually sees ourselves in the younger brother. A gospel thought is, man, I know they're deep in sin and they're running from God, but I know my own heart. I know my own past. I know that if it wasn't, from God, if it wasn't for God's spirit living in me, I'd be doing the exact same thing, or at least a different sin, but just as passionately. The gospel creates humility, not superiority, self-righteousness, or arrogance. Christian, when you come up against, when you see another believer that's running from God, that's rebellious, that's deep in sin, the gospel creates humility towards them. Not superiority, not self-righteousness, nor arrogance. Similarly, love and compassion towards older brothers too. Not just rebellious, sinful, younger brothers, but when you interact with or come, come across another Christian, brother or sister in Christ, who's actually doing really well, who's doing a great job of, of loving God and loving others, who's having victory over sin, whose life is full of spiritual fruit and, and great good deeds towards others, we celebrate with them. It, it's, it's a joyful thing. Ephesians 2, that same passage we looked at, also talks about God being the preparer of all of our good works that we should walk in them. God's, God's the author behind the good deeds that we end up doing anyway. So when we see a brother or sister in Christ thrive in this world spiritually, when they're doing really well, when they're killing sin, when they're believing truth, when their life is, is full of love and good deeds, we praise God because we know ultimately it's his spirit behind it all. It's, it's him who's authored it. It's his, his spirit who's empowered it. So rather than having jealousy or disdain or contempt, we praise God when a brother or sister is doing well. The gospel creates joy and worship, not jealousy, envy, or contempt. When we see someone who is beyond us, who's more mature than us, who's excelling in their, in their walk with Jesus, the gospel creates joy and worship in our hearts, not jealousy, envy, or contempt. So as we believe the gospel, our prayer is that it will give us love and compassion both for younger brothers and elder brothers here in our church, in our lives, and as we are in, in each of those camps as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this great parable, this great story that just unpacks the reality of our lives. God, we know that in general, we are all uh, younger brothers. We have rebelled against you. We have wanted your gifts rather than you. We have wanted our wealth and inheritance and wished you dead and have run off 
and are in a, a spiritually dead state. We are spiritually lost. But you sent your son as a, as a true and great elder brother who came to us, who rescued us, who paid our debt, who restored us to the Father. Thank you for that good news. We pray against our hearts, too, that want to be elder brothers, that want to think that the reason we're so great is because we're so great, and not realize that, uh, God, you're behind it, that your, your spirit's the one that's changing our hearts and, and empowering us to, to, to love others and to love you well. So, God, we pray that uh, this parable and, even more importantly, the gospel would help us to be a church that, that has love and co- compassion towards each other, that doesn't compare, that doesn't get jealous, that doesn't look down on each other, but rather uh, when we see someone excelling, we praise you and thank you because we know it's ultimately about you. When we see someone hurting, we don't hate them. We don't look down on them, but God, we see ourselves in them. We can, with compassion and love, can move towards them and say, I've struggled with the same thing before too. Or I know my own heart and I know I'm just as sinful. So God, give, give us uh, just great love and compassion for each other. And we thank you for this great, great news that uh, the parable of the two sons unpacks in this beautiful picture. Thank you for your saving work, Jesus. Amen.